Hello everyone, you're listening to Night's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. Welcome back, frequent and infrequent listeners and everyone in between, to the first official episode of Night's History Cast in 2023. I hope you all are having an amazing start to the new year. This podcast episode will always hold a special place to my, in my heart because I had the opportunity to interview one of my mentors here throughout my time as an undergraduate history student at UCF, Dr. Luis Martinez Fernandez, about his upcoming book titled When the World Turned Upside Down, Politics, Culture, and the Unimaginable Events of 2019 to 2022. My main objective in having this podcast conversation with him was to provide a nice preview, highlight reel, if you will, of his book. So we talked about some of his most groundbreaking punches stylistically and content wise we didn't we didn't talk about them all because of course you got to read it got to find out for yourself the first set of questions were about you know the process of becoming a regular columnist and then syndicated and how that became a gradual process and to what it is now which is a collection into a book and then we talked about the content that's you know the 66 opinion columns that are in the book you know we talked i pointed out Some of them specifically, some of the ones that caught my attention more than others, but all 66 of them are fascinating to read. And he has the historical intuition, which is something that is highly present in the book as a thematic point, but also in this podcast, he has a historical intuition to present to us, the audience and the readers, this dialogue between the past and the present and how that's very useful in tumultuous times, like the unimaginable events of these past three years. The book is currently doing pre-order sales as its official release date is February 15th. So make sure after listening to this podcast and getting, in my opinion, a fascinating preview of the book, go make sure to put in your pre-order or mark your calendars February 15th because that's when the book will come out. Anyone that went through the unimaginable events, it's a must read. If you care about, you know, society, culture, politics, even, and being a world-class citizen, it's a must read. So enough of me talking. Enjoy the preview to the book and cue that music. Hello, everyone. This is Sebastian Garcia from Night's History Cast, and I have an announcement to make. By the end of this episode, I will have crossed something off my bucket list which is to have a podcast conversation with one of my mentors who I've been fortunate enough to connect with during my time here at UCF as an undergrad history student. So I have in front of me Dr. Luis Martinez Fernandez, who is an historian, university professor, a nationally syndicated columnist, and public speaker whose fields of expertise include Latin America, the Caribbean, Cuba, education, world cultures, Latino-Hispanic politics, and culture. He is a Pegasus Professor of History at UCF, which, by the way, is the highest slash most prestigious award any faculty can receive can receive at this university and an award winning columnist with Creator Syndicate. In this podcast, we'll be talking about his latest published book that will be available to the public on February 15th, titled When the World Turned Upside Down, Politics, Culture and the Unimaginable Events of 2019 to 2022, which contains 66 essays and opinion columns that he wrote from February 2019 and just this past month, December 2022. 
Listeners, you can pre-order the book right now on Amazon and other online vendors. So first off, congratulations on another published book, number eight, right, for you overall? Yes. This is your third publication in the past seven years, if we're including the paperback edition of Revolutionary Cuba, A History, uh, which that alone is an impressive feat, but coupled that with the fact that you know, what you had to do to write this book um, is even more impressive and admirable. So congratulations. So, But how are you feeling today? Well, Sebastian, thank you for those kind words and this invitation to do what I love doing, which is playing with ideas and words. I fell in love with that when I was a freshman at the University of Puerto Rico, and I still keep on doing it and plan to stick around and write a couple more books. Okay, there you go. You already crossed off one of my questions at the end of it. I was going to ask, is this last number eight? But no, I'm glad to hear that it's not. All right, so I'm going to highlight the structure of this podcast so you and I and the listeners can be all on the same page on how this process is going to work. So the first set of questions I'll ask you will primarily focus on the process or the journey um, you took from writing columns since 2019 and then with regularity in 2020 to where you are now with the publication of this book. Then the remainder set of questions will be primarily commentary content questions going through each of the sections and just things that um, I just want to pick your brain more about or things that I found interesting and I would like to know your thoughts more on. So stuff like that. So sounds good. Wonderful. All right. So my first question, you've been a full-time professor at UCF since the mid-2000s. Did you ever imagine getting into the world of journalism or for that matter being syndicated? You mentioned in the book that you did write some opinion columns when you were in Puerto Rico in your in the mid twenties, in your mid twenties, excuse me. But did you ever imagine something like what you've been doing for the past three years? Well, you, you're right to point out that I was in my mid twenties in Puerto Rico, trained as a historian, but I always recognized the importance of applying the perspective and the methods of history to understand contemporary developments and sometimes take the risk and anticipate future developments. So it was a first love. And when I came to the United States to pursue my doctorate at Duke University, I set that aside because I had to focus on the task at hand, which was to write a dissertation, then the books. Um, And over the last um, 20 years, I may have written 15 until recently. And what motivated me was, uh, well, first of all, the the COVID-19 pandemic. It really altered our schedules and and even the ability to travel to do research. Right. So I, I began to write regular columns in 2019, February, actually. And then I was very fortunate to be invited by Creators Syndicate, which is one of the few uh, syndicates for columnists to to join their team. And I've been doing that every week. (laughs) You make clear in the introduction of the book that its creation was a gradual process and you attribute it to the alignment of three factors. Can you explain to our listeners what those factors were and how did it ultimately push you past that line of deciding, okay, yeah, let's make it into a book? Number one, we're 
dramatic political changes in this country Mm -hmm. during the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. The other one is that at the time I was working on a, a book chapter for a history of the U.S. relations with the Caribbean, and I focused greatly on the antebellum and the Civil War. So I was reading about the U.S. antebellum and the Civil War uh, during the morning and afternoon, and then at night when I turned on the news, I was seeing some very scary parallels. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the other factor is sort of serendipity. Uh, One day, um, an editor from, from Europe, I think the Netherlands, sent me an email asking me to write uh, a column on the Cuban Constitution, inviting me to do that. And I said, well, I, don't, I really don't want to write about that, but uh, I'll write other things. Right. So that's where it started, uh, really, in 2019. Talk to me a little bit about the process of writing these articles. You mentioned in your previous answer that you had to do, it was a weekly thing, you know, and you had a deadline of submitting these opinion columns every Friday by 7 p.m., as you mentioned in the book. But what was that overall process to get to that point? Well, yes, it's like dairy farmers. Dairy (laughs) farmers can't go on vacation because they have to milk the cows every day. Right. So it's interesting because I was really tired of having these long-term deadlines uh, uh, going back to the, the 1980s, really, and owing somebody a book, always. So I decided I don't want to owe anybody a book. Uh, let me try writing these weekly columns. And it became worse because now you have a deadline every Friday. Yep. And if you don't, if you don't click that send button before 7 p.m., uh, you turn into a pumpkin. <laughs> And then when I when I decided to put the columns together as a book, then I had the two sets of deadlines, a long term deadline (laughs) for the book, the weekly deadlines. So I'm managing. How did the nine topical sections of the book came about and how did you organize them once you figured out the sections like? Was there any particular reason why the U.S. sections came first um, and then you expanded to other regions thereafter or was, you know, talk to me a little bit about that. Very good. When I sent the original proposal to Peter Lang Publishers, it was just a collection of, uh, of columns in chronological order. So they appeared in that proposal as they appeared in, in the media. Now, I wasn't very happy with that. And uh, one of the most uh, challenging and enjoyable parts of, of being a book writer is that you get to, you know, you, you design the blueprint. Right. And you start building, but then you make decisions. Well, this room shouldn't go here. Let me put a bathroom instead. Yeah. Uh, so authors are really struggling, but in a good way with that. And I, I thought, well, how can I make this more enjoyable, really. So I decided to group them into topics. The first topic deals with uh, U.S. politics, always looking back uh, at the 19th century for for parallels and comparisons, uh, because that's what I was, was started doing uh, back in 2019. And then there's certain topics that have always been dear to me, 
There are three chapters, one dedicated to Puerto Rico, one dedicated to Cuba, one dedicated to Latinos. There are a couple of chapters that I had a lot of fun writing, which have to do with reading, writing, books. Uh, there's a section on, on education. And then uh, towards the end of the process, well, we have the, the war in Ukraine. And that opened a whole range of, of topics for me. That's why at the end, the, the closing chapter, well, not the last one, but second to last, deals with geopolitics. Uh, and then the last one, and it, it's one thing I love playing with titles. Uh, you know, I can't, the, the original title that I was working with was All History is Contemporary History which, you know, historians understand that quote, but it's, it doesn't really have a punch. Yeah. So a few months ago, I, I wrote to the editors and I said, you know, that title is kind of lame. <laughs> <laughs> and let's put some punch here. And I came up with the idea, when the world turned upside down, politics, culture, and the unimaginable events of 2019, 2022, there is a final section which is um, entitled the history as oracle mm -hmm. and in that section i i look at the role of history in understanding not just the past but the present and also it helps us uh, anticipate what may happen there's an essay in which i i investigate it because let me tell you one thing as a historian i am a researcher right and you can't write columns just as if it was a you know, a, a train of thought mm -hmm. without research. So there's much research. And I came across, at the time when I was writing some of my first columns, Politico magazine, uh, Foreign Affairs, and a few other um, publications were surveying scholars. And these are the top people mm -hmm. uh, in their fields. And the question was, what do you anticipate as far as the ramifications of the COVID-19 pandemic? And really, <laughs> I mean, if you read those, you recognize how off the mark they were. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about people in big name universities. And the problem was that they're not historians. Exactly. And if you're not a historian, you know, we use a telescope. Mm-hmm. And that telescope we use to look back, but we can also look to the future. So it's understandable why they came up with ideas such as China is going to take over the world and the Western brand is going to be debilitated. Mm -hmm. Somebody else said that this was going to be an opportunity to find ourselves, yep. as the, the better side of who we are. The common enemy. Yes. Was, yeah. And another person, I mean... Actually, I got <laughs> one person who's mentioned in that column, mm -hmm. read it, wasn't happy about it, and wanted to engage me in a discussion and, oh, and wow. sort of questioning. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, I wrote your words. Right. <laughs> you were the one who <laughs> yeah, said that. Exactly. And I'll leave it at that. Leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah, that that was one of my, my favorite opinion columns you wrote because um, they, they were really off the mark and it's again you tied it with the fact that they're not historians so they don't they're not trained to look at it as you mentioned throughout 
several times throughout the book with the interconnectedness of the past and the present in that dialogue. Um, one of my favorite themes that I that you mentioned in the book. So you said that uh, all history is contemporary history was an alternative title. Was there other alternative titles you were contemplating with throughout yes. this process? There was a second one, which was also lame. <laughs> and it, it, the title was, If History is of Any Value, not a powerful title. Right. I, I love powerful titles. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, my first book was entitled Torn Between Empires. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, Actually, when you're a writer, there are many things that you can play with. For example, the process of selecting a cover for the book. This is something that I've done from my first book. I always play a role in, in determining the concept or of, of, the, of the book cover. The same thing with titles. Now, titles and covers, they're not the author's final decision okay. because these are meant uh, for marketing. Mm. And there are people who know more about marketing than right. I do right. at the various presses with, with which I have worked. But I've been very fortunate. They've taken my ideas for titles and covers, and it's, it's another fun part. Uh, one thing I want to let the listeners know is that, you know, make it fun. Mm -hmm. Enjoy it. Sometimes authors write in a tone as if you know the, the the weight of all the sins of the world <laughs> is on their shoulder and somehow if they don't write this book yeah. it's not going to be okay right well i'm sorry you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have that much power right and enjoy it i i, I am who i am mm -hmm. people who read my articles and and books say luis uh, you read the way you sound, mm -hmm. and it's true. It's, yep. it's me. I don't. I don't have any embellishments or affectations. Right. Um, I'm just having fun. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I, you add me to those lists of people because as I was reading the book, I definitely heard your voice and your. You know, I did tell you. I didn't think you were that funny, but you are very much funny in the book. Um. So I got to see that side of you. But yes, enjoyable. I mean, that that. That's what made the book so fascinating to read, not just because I aspire to be in the same field you are in a historian, but just as a citizen of the world. Well, it's it's the kind of book that a kid who grew up in the suburbs of San Juan throwing rocks mm. isn't supposed to write. Right. That's true. Yeah, um, it's true. Those of us who come from islands are tend to be insularistic. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the Caribbean, take Japan, take England. And it's been a process that's taken many decades for me to expand my horizon and the topics that I write about. So I started writing about Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. Important, yes, but I challenged myself to expand into the Spanish-speaking Caribbean and also the US. And this is my first global book. Mm -hmm as far as scope. That's what makes it so much more impressive. And I'm not just here giving you all the flowers because it's a given to you. I genuinely mean it. Start small, but then you could expand and you are a really good, if not great example of that. You started small and then you've expanded to, you know, talk about topics in about India and China relations, you know. Like, did you ever imagine yourself being that global historian? That sort of uh, developed as when I became a, a scholar. I will give credit mm -hmm. to the very broad 
cosmopolitan education that I received at the University of Puerto Rico, which is not a wealthy institution, but I was fortunate to be there at a time, the, the late 70s and early to mid 80s, of effervescence. Mm-hmm. Some of the best professors that I could imagine having, I had them. And as I write in some of the columns, there's a part of them in each of these, right? in each of these works. All right, so let's talk about some of these unimaginable events transitioning to uh, the commentary questions I have for you. So immediately, even you know, before getting to the table of contents, you open the book with four quotes, um, and I have them here. Um, with that, that by the way, it's within itself is a major theme throughout the book. You like to use a lot of quotes and um, aphorisms and you know things of that nature. And I, I have it here. I tallied at least sixteen times there was aphorisms used, but I want to emphasize at least because there's probably more than that. So I'll read the four opening quotes so our listeners could better understand this question. And you can interrupt me if I mispronounce the the names of the people because I probably will. So apologies. The first quote was, all history is contemporary history by Benedito Croc. Croce. Croce. History must teach us in first place how to read a newspaper by Pierre Villar. There comes a time when silence becomes dishonesty by France Fanon. And then the final quote was, when you write a book, you're asking someone to make an investment in their time and money. A column can come and go as the week pass, but a book needs to be timeless by Regina Brett. So can you explain to, to the audience what was the purpose or even the inspiration for you to open the book in such a manner? Yes, uh, It's common to have those epigrams, I think they're called, in books at the beginning. And a book isn't done, isn't finished, until you've turned in the last version, corrected proofs, and the publishers start printing it. Mm -hmm. Before that, uh, you shouldn't abuse it, but (laughs) before that, you can make a lot of changes. And and I, I... I had a list of, of epigrams which was very different, <clears throat> and some of the ones I I picked up just a few months ago. Uh, I like the one by Pierre Villar, a French historian. I'm paraphrasing it. Uh, the the first role of history is to teach people how to read the newspaper, and all of these are very playful. There's I'm playing with the reader. There's nothing wrong with playing with the reader. Nope. Um, some readers enjoy it. Yep. Um, so I, I was thinking, you know, well, history helps people read the newspaper, which speaks to the topic of how important and illuminating history can be to understand the phenomenon. Uh, the quote by France Fanon, uh, there comes a time when... Silence becomes dishonesty. When silence becomes dishonesty. Sebastian, there's too much of that. Yeah, and I'm not in this field to make friends. Right, uh, I love having friends for sure. Uh, I'm not going to write what's popular. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to use the buzzwords that everybody's using. You do pay a price for that, mm-hmm. but uh, there are many people who are silent about many important things. For example, I write about Putin's Russia, and she's China, and. Uh, other dictatorial regimes. I hate that, partly because my family had to leave Cuba 
because of that similar of of authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people who will say, well, Putin is this, Pinochet was that. Uh, but then when it comes to Cuba or Venezuela, they're silent. Mm -hmm. That's dishonesty. Yep. It may help sell books because there are people who like to read that kind of junk, mm -hmm. if you if you excuse the expression. <laughs> but I, I just can't bring myself to do that. Moving into the, the, the broader intro for the entire book. So I'm just going to ask this question now because you first mentioned it in this overall introduction to the book, but then you make it explicitly clear in section two which was titled Rough Drafts of History, U.S. Society and Politics from 2019 to 2022. But one of the most fascinating themes um, of your columns and of this book is the duality between historian and journalist and how there's connections, but also disconnections between the two disciplines. In my opinion, this is what makes the book a must read for anyone listening and why it's so powerful, because you know, you have the astute skills of a historian, as you were mentioning earlier, that the with the telescope analogy to see um, contemporary developments within the frame of historical um, backdrops. Can you please expand or explain on that point of the how is it like playing the role of historian journalist? That's a good question. Uh, you know, historians have difficulties calling themselves writers. Mm -hmm. Uh, that doesn't happen with novelists or poets. They, they call themselves writers. But I, I consider myself a writer, and I write every single day. And sometimes it's for longer projects. Sometimes it's for columns. And I, I think the two come together very nicely. I agree. Now, there's a belief by some, including some in Tallahassee, that historians shouldn't bring their opinions to bear and that they should write about the facts. Unfortunately, they don't know about history, but, but they feel qualified to tell professional historians what is it that we do and how we should do it. Right. And of course, in opinion columns, there's a lot of opinion, mm -hmm. but readers will find that even in my opinion columns, there's a fair amount of research for just these 750 words yes. that I have to produce every week. That's my historian in there. Exactly. But then, as a historian, I've always written in what I think is a fun way, mm -hmm. uh, sense of humor. Yes. That's who I am. Uh, I'm Cuban. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so we use humor right. every day. Yep. Now, that has to be done with style. Of course. Of course, right? It's not slapstick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it has to be done with style. It has to be done in a subtle way. Exactly. Yep. Some people will get it. Mm -hmm. Others will not. Mm -hmm. uh, I think of uh, stand-up comedians when they say a joke and nobody gets it. Yeah. And, and then you have that, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh out of the audience. Um, I love to play with words. One of the negative things about being a columnist is that you have to write very fast. Right. So you write your column, two, you start two or three days before they're due, and uh, you really don't have time to revisit and revisit and revisit, and that's where you have an opportunity to play with words. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, what's art? Art is putting two things that you don't think go together well, putting them together, and making something of beauty. 
and those of us who write uh, make those decisions every, you know, every sentence. Should I use this word or that one? Sometimes it's for accuracy. Sometimes it's for the music of it. I'm from the Caribbean, and uh, Caribbean writers have a rhythm to, exactly. to ourselves, and that's very evident. I, I'm not trying to imitate, um, you know, the big uh, New York Times columnists, mm-hmm. some of whom I admire mm-hmm. very much, like George Will, who happens to be conservative, but, you know, he writes so well mm-hmm. that uh, he just lures you into his, his world. Right. So it's been very important for me to retain a Cuban voice, a Caribbean voice, because at the end of the day, if you wear masks and you wear these, uh, um, you know, and you try to sound like somebody else, mm-hmm. it doesn't really work. No. People can tell. Yeah, people will sniff it out pretty quickly. <laughs> also in the introduction, you laid out some of the rules you set for yourself when writing and you've sprinkled them here and there throughout this podcast conversation about making it enjoyable, being honest with yourself, that you will never write something that you truly don't believe. Can you share, you know, some of those other rules and why you see them important? Yes, I, I think there's too much of that. You're you're writing to please somebody, whether it's a paper for a professor. Actually this week's column is going to be on Chat GPT. Mm-hmm. Uh, my goodness. Yep. Um, I wrote a column on translations, uh-huh. and I talked about Google Translate yes. and how it's getting better and better. I forget what the closing was, but I I, I wrote something like, hopefully uh, there will be no op-ed generator yeah, yeah, in the said, future. Yeah, yeah. And in two years, we have that. Yep. And But there's a trick. Mm-hmm. If you have looked at computer-generated art, there's no humanity. Exactly. I mean, it's there's no humanity. I hope that a computer will never reach the level of a Picasso with mm-hmm. creativity. Right. I mean, they could copy, but they can't come up with no. a new style altogether. And so this week I'm writing on ChatGPT and what it means. And uh, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I hope that there would always be a space. Yep for works of art and works of literature where there's a heart beating behind it. Exactly. Yep. Well said, well said. Yeah, chat GPT, I was talking to another professor about it. It's it's scary, but I think, again, you could sniff it out because there's no, at the end of the day, a human, you could kind of tell when a human's writing and when a robot's writing. So section one, which is titled American History, Past, Present, Future, and Futures within parentheses and a question mark after the word future. This is where you write extensively on the historical parallels between the antebellum, civil war, and even reconstruction period to the contemporary period starting with the Obama presidency all the way through the 2020 presidential elections. What made you realize these historical connections and was this the beginning of what you deemed the unimaginable? Well, well, yes. Uh, as I said earlier, I was working on a project on the 19th century looking at civil war and antebellum and reconstruction and then all of a sudden we're we're in the midst of uh, dramatic political transformations which by the way did not start in 2016 you have to go back a little bit to 2008 when obama was president and and there are many parallels that i spell out 
of course, uh, polarization, increased vitriol and violence, growing. Well, it, it's interesting that today we have roughly the same proportion of non-U.S.-born residents as we had in in the 1850s. We have this uh, polarization of cities versus the rural areas. Mm-hmm. That was another characteristic of what happened in, in the 19th century. The loss of uh, credibility of political institutions. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court is reaching very low levels of approval in this country. Before that was the, the Taney Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 1850s and, and early 60s. So there's too many things uh, that are parallel. And some people say, well, history repeats itself. Uh, historians don't like that. It's a slogan. It's simplistic. But, you know, human beings will react in similar ways when when confronting similar situations. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that one party back then, uh, the Democratic Party, and particularly the South, the political game was no longer working for them. And that created frustration, and frustration led to violence. And we see some of those things today, you know, without going political, but, you know, there's there's one party for whom the system is not working. Right. The electoral democratic system is not working. And it's going to get worse given demographic changes. So there were many parallels. Yeah, when you laid them all out throughout the section, I didn't realize how many parallels there were. Um, and then finally, at the end of the section, I'm like, wow, it is scary to think the, that there is so many parallels. In the same section, you introduced the theme of, quote, every essay in this section, in the entire book for that matter, rests on the supposition that history is a continuous dialogue between past and present, end quote. Can you explain why that is significant in all times, but especially during tumultuous periods like the years your book covers? Yes, it, it, it's significant throughout history, mm-hmm. but there are times when these parallels become uh, somewhat more shocking. So there's this dialogue. As a historian writing in the year 2023, I look back at the past with the eyes, the preoccupations, the biases, the questions of somebody who lives in the contemporary world. Therefore, that is going to color the way I look at the past. Right. But then in the other direction, the past, and that's one of the main arguments of this book, also helps us understand the present, Mm -hmm. Uh, not just in the U.S., but, you know, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. If you look at that, the history of that part of the world, uh, Ukraine uh, has suffered dearly. Now, it's interesting. I was listening, as I like to do, listening to NPR on my way to work, and there were news that Poland was going to give or has requested formally permission from Germany to provide tanks to Ukraine. I never thought I would be that excited about German <laughs> tanks, <laughs> given given the history. Yep. It, it's a great irony because, you know, when we look at Germany, Germany 
World War One, World War Two came close to destroying democracy. Right. And Germany is a powerhouse of democracy. Mm-hmm. It's it's wonderful. Right. The same thing with Japan, by the way. Yep. You that was one of the the final opinion columns in your book that you, you were talking about Germany. What you just said about they were on the brink of destroying democratic principles, and now they're a, a bastion for uh, democratic values. So uh, I'm happy to see German tanks rolling. Right. <laughs> in the op-ed titled Race and Politics, Contemporary Echoes of the U.S. Antebellum, which was published on September 9th and 19th, 2020, on Creators Syndicate, this is one of the examples throughout this time period with now looking back in 2023, the theme of having that historian intuition that you have was remarkably accurate, albeit sad. In this case, you stated, quote, given Trump's record of falsely denouncing rigged elections and mass electoral fraud and his persistent calls for political violence, it is hard to imagine a dignified concession and exit from power. Blood will be spilled, not between two armies, but in a low intensity conflict that could last years. May my historian's intuition fail me this time, end quote. Again, that article is in September of 2020. It certainly did not fail as four months later after this column was published, the January 6th insurrection of the Capitol happened. Can you explain how the training of your discipline history can give you that that ability? Well, I'm glad you read that segment and not me. Right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't shy from politics. Right. I mean, the purpose of this is not uh, a politicized work Mm -hmm. uh, to indoctrinate anybody. Exactly. But I reserve for myself mm-hmm. that great American freedom. Right. Freedom of the press, mm-hmm. freedom to teach, mm-hmm. to teach what I deem appropriate. Right. I value that very much. And uh, yes, uh, you know, when, when, when you look at the past and you look at moments when things are about to boil over, uh, when you have the rhetoric, when you have the class, uh, interestingly, not not so much class divisions, but the geographic divisions, people uh, in the countryside hating urban people, uh, sometimes vice versa, when you have uh, increased violence. uh, Those are the kinds of things that we saw during the antebellum, and then that violence was sort of channeled through warfare. Now, we're never going to see a second civil war in the sense of a north against south. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But sometimes I I wonder if we may be already in a low-intensity civil war. Uh, You see political violence. You see the the killings of uh, a number of of black individuals who were shopping at a grocery store. Uh, You see political violence on both on both sides, yes, really. So when, you know, there's a saying in Spanish. Okay. I'm going to say it in Spanish first okay. and then in translate it. El diablo sabe más por ser viejo que por ser diablo. In other words, the devil knows more because he's old 
than because he's the devil. Right. And I think that's very true. When we amass past experiences, we develop that intuition that that I mention in, in the book. Moving on to section two, which, as I said in a previous question, is titled Rough Drafts of History, U.S. Society and Politics 2019 to 2022. This is where that duality theme that we've already covered is really at play. In this section, you got to showcase more of your journalistic side with even sometimes going play by play like a sports commentator which was enjoyable to read. In this section, there's opinion columns from talking about what does socialism mean to the awful murder of George Floyd and the events that ensued afterwards to the COVID-19 pandemic and the 2020 presidential elections to, the, of course, the ultimate boiling point of January 6th. What was it like in writing in real time about these developments? Yes, uh, I said earlier that good columns should have plenty of research behind them. But good columns also have uh, reporting. Mm -hmm. And I never thought that I would see what happened in this country on January 6th. But you develop an instinct, you know, smells odd. Mm -hmm. I mean, something may happen. Right. So what I did was I spent a lot of hours, almost without sleep, watching this is this is not an ad, but watching <laughs> CNN and MSNBC, and by the way, clicking into Fox every now and then mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. And I did that beginning with a a rally on I think it was January fourth in Georgia. Then the following day, the the senatorial uh, elections. So what I did was I I turned on the TV. I had my remote on the, on, on the left hand. I had pencil and paper on the right. And I just started writing as a play-by-play type of reporting, never imagining. But, you know, right. there's some places there where, where I hint, you know, uh, there was a call for violence and say, well, may, I hope this doesn't happen. Right. But it actually did. And that, that's a lot of fun. I got to play reporter mm-hmm. in a three-part series on on January 4th, 5th, and 6th. Moving on to section three, which is titled Culture is the History that We Inherit. This section is one of my favorite, you know, because of all the opinion columns you wrote, like the diplomacy of haggling, uh, which was published on December 12th, 2020 on Creators Syndicate or the Hayako, you know, the Cuban sandwich and other Cuban slash Caribbean foods for thought, which was published between October and November 2021. Because it felt more personal, you know, and after reading those first two sections that it was so intense, yeah. going to section three was a little softer on the tone. So it, it, it was nice to read. Talk to us a little bit about these opinion columns and why were they important to include them in a book that, you know, touches on these explosive, unimaginable events? Yeah, uh, they're intense. Yeah. And it's intense to write them. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. It's painful sometimes to write about some of these topics. But this section is mostly cultural, and there are two types of columns that I write. The first type is what I call off the headlines. Some event, national, worldwide, (coughs) makes it to the news, and I comment on it. And others are, I call them, of a not-so-urgent kind, (laughs) which means that you can write them almost any time. And I have columns on... Let's see. I mean, there's one on the Cuban sandwich and the ajiaco. Mm-hmm. 
I, I have fun. I use them as metaphors for Cuban culture. Uh, I wrote a few on solstice rituals uh, throughout history, going back to ancient Greece and ancient Egypt, all the way to the present. Uh, actually, I like to bring things to the present. Uh, St. John the Baptist Day is not really a Christian mm -hmm. celebration and the practices, but it is uh, what I call syncretism. Mm -hmm. These are ancient pagan beliefs and rituals of the solstice that later on were fused with Christian ideas and Christian stories. And, uh, well, guess what? Uh, many of these rituals were in water. Mm -hmm. And guess what? John the Baptist yeah. uh, baptized people in water. And that's where they, the two of them came together. Uh, I love culture. The, the study of culture is very important for me. Moving on to section four, which is titled, I Never Left the Classroom, Reflections on Education, Books, and Reading. This is probably the section that I attach to the most from an admiration standpoint, because I, like I've told you plenty of times, I aspire to be a university professor like yourself. And the fact that you are so graciously humble and open to share your thoughts and experience on education and, you know, what you state in the intro goes as far back as 1969. You know, and on that note, explain why you open this section with the opinion column titled The Schoolboy's Old Red English Atlas which was published on February 27th and March 6, 2021. You know, some people believe that our system is a level playing field, that if you succeed, it's because of hard work. And people forget that many of us are very privileged. Mm -hmm. I was reading the other day because I love reading Robert Wright's book, The System. And he goes after Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of J.P. Morgan. Okay. And he quotes him saying that he's sort of a, a self-made man. But then Wright does the research and says, no, you're not self-made. Look <laughs> at your father. Look at your grandfather. All these privileges, the schools that you went to. Right. Now, I consider myself very privileged because my parents, you know, middle-class family, but uh, the first money uh, was invested in our education. Mm -hmm. And I was in Peru growing up, and I went to a— an English school, San Marcos Apostol, and I remember this. This is the oldest book that I have in my possession. It's an atlas, an atlas that was published in 1966. I was uh, eight or nine years old when I had it, and with all my travels, I, I never brought myself not to bring that book with me. And I thought, well, you know, let me write something about that book and, and again, connect the, the past, because this is some geographical information from the 1960s to the present. Of course, we've seen climatological changes, but it also allowed me to tell the story of my life. Yeah. You know, uh, I remember, uh, and I talk about this in, in one of the columns, uh, I was 10 years old and um, we were relocating from Lima, Peru to Miami, and we flew over Cuba. And I remember seeing, and my mom said to me, I was 10, she said, look, that's Cuba. You know, and that felt special right. because up to that point, I had been, you know, an exile. Mm -hmm. And it felt good. And, and there were fires. And I just, I didn't ask her, but I, I, I wondered, what are all those fires? And I didn't know. 
But years later, when I became a historian, you you know, some of us become historians because we want to understand ourselves, our culture, our past. And I, I started researching on the Cuban Revolution. It was 1970. 1970 was the year of the 10 million ton sugar harvest. And there was a lot of fire. And that fire was a, a process to sort of, um, once you cut the cane, or actually before you cut the cane, you set on fire these uh, sugar cane uh, lands, and that makes it easier to harvest, and it removes some of those sharp leaves. It was a lot of fun. I mean, all these years later, I finally understood what those fires were. That's awesome. That's so wholesome to hear. So being in the university system as a student for the past almost four years now, coinciding with these unimaginable events, I felt strongly attached to your opinion column titled The Seven Deadly Sins of the Modern American University, which was published on May 8, 2021 on Creator Syndicate. So I have a two-parter. So the first part of the question is, can you walk us through, you know, you don't have to go through all seven, but if you want, by all means, you could do seven deadly sins and then my second part to that question is with your sharp historian intuition what do you see in the future of the american university okay seven deadly sins of the modern american university let me get the most controversial one out of the way okay and it's a series of isms Mm -hmm. and one of them is footballism You know, uh, I, I think I quote or I I use a, a joke by Rodney Dangerfield. There was a fight and a hockey game broke out. I mean, sorry for those who believe that football should be the center of a university. I said, there was a football game and a university broke out. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of them. Some of them have to do with, uh, one of them is metricism. Mm-hmm. We are so obsessed with measuring everything, you know, the number. How can how can you measure, Sebastian? You were talking about how inspired you've been by being my student. How can I measure that with numbers? You can't. You can't. No. Yet that's the most important thing that happens. Uh, one of them is assessmentism. Mm-hmm. I had some fun with the structure of that word. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see what others are. Mm. STEMism. Oh, STEMism. In that one, I... Yep. Don't get me started, right? Yeah, yeah, literally. Uh, STEM bullying. Yeah. My goodness. For goodness sake, you know? Uh, should there be sciences in universities? Of course. Of course, of course. Engineering. Of this course. is a modern world. But give us some space. Oh, amen to that. You know, yeah. I, when, I have, when I have conversations with university administrators, I ask them, well, how much does it cost to keep a scientist happy. Mm-hmm. Cost a lot of money. Yeah, it does. They need labs, they yeah. need all sorts of things. How much does it cost to keep a historian happy? I asked them. Uh-huh. Okay. You know? <laughs> it's just a few thousand dollars right. for travel to research. Yet, I mean, it, it's it's a sign of the times, yeah. you know. There's an uh, an emphasis on the practical, but you know, these are things that feed the spirit. Mhm. You know, scientists can prolong life and mm-hmm. doctors and, but can they make that life, that prolonged life, fulfilling and uh, meaningful? Mm-hmm. 
they they can't. Nope. That's why that's why STEMism I think is the first. The STEMism on that is the list. first one. Yeah, it's yeah. the first one on the list. And then you conclude it with STEM without the flower is just STEM. When I read when I read that I was like, oof, that was talk about punch. That was a punch. Well, you know, I try to every now and then come with a line of that right. of that punch and value. I'm double majoring when I graduate this this May. I'll be getting both a biomedical sciences and a history major. Long story, you know the story, but for the listeners, long story about how that happened. But this is something that gets me really frustrated because I see it. You know, I go into my science classes that I had to take to fulfill that major. Then I go into the history classes and I I just see the, and I mentioned it in previous episodes on this podcast and I see the drop off and it, it's very disheartening for, for someone that it's going to, that's going to go pursue the history route. So yeah, that, that one, that's definitely a a deadly sin. Well, good for you, Sebastian. I hope you don't blame me. No, no, no. For that conversion. (laughs) No, no. Definitely but, not. you know, life is short and you might as well uh, follow your, your heart. Exactly. And not study something just because you think it's going to pay more. Exactly. Because in the end, it may not even pay more. Mm-hmm. Yep. Amen to that. Another opinion column in that section was titled Diverse Pathways in Education and Life, Seven Real Life Stories, which, spoiler alert to the listeners, you almost got me. Uh, but then when I read the sentence of uh, Lee, that was the name, earned the highest academic honor it offers its faculty, I knew. I was like, wait, hold up. I think I know this person. Uh, and of course, it was you were talking about yourself, but you, were, you weren't saying all those things to boast. You were saying it um, to contextualize it with rewarding true and full student diversity. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, many of my teachers would be surprised not just that I've earned these awards and I published all these books, but that what I was actually able to hold a job. Now, I am very sensitive to my students' needs. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that gives me great pain is to see the epidemic of mental health problems, emotional problems, learning disabilities, um, I love students who have HDAD. Why? Because I think they're the brightest. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't think in a linear way. They're able to make their their brains, I can visualize them almost as pinball machines. Right. And making connections that nobody else can make. Yet in schools, because uh, they forgot the paper, they lost Mm -hmm. the the assignment, we give them D's and F's and C's. That's, I have a very soft spot for students with, I, I actually don't call HDAD a learning disability. Right. I think what's disabled is society in general that doesn't understand <laughs> <laughs> that that those brains are special. Right. Same thing with uh, emotional distress, which was aggravated during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that made me suffer a lot, and I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, of course, but I'm very sensible to my students, and I see a lot of suffering, and I make myself available to them. I see that you that there are changes in your behavior. Uh, I'm here to listen and to help. Uh, if you want to talk, I'll be all ears, and then 
you know, when they open up and they say, yeah, we, I'm going through all of these difficulties and the list is just painful. Yeah. So I have the, the power to s- suggest very gently, you know, I think you might benefit from seeing uh, a professional and we have them here in the university. Um, that wasn't the case 20 years ago. Right. You know, you obviously know I have tremendous respect for you for a lot of reasons, but in this aspect, it's that it's one of them because I think oftentimes, you know, and I don't, I'm not going to generalize all professors, but there are some professors that don't realize the the unique position they are in to help students not only academically but personally, especially since yeah, you could assume parents are there, but sometimes parents aren't there or parents don't understand, you know, or. Um, are part of the problem. Exactly. So the fact that you are, I would say, in the minority that does understand the privileged position you have and you use it for good, I mean, no, I, it's truly, um, I respect that. So thank you. Moving on to section five titled Despierta Latino. I like that title. Another section I'm fond of because, you know, I'm Hispanic American myself. Um, and then I found your insight and perspective on this field, which you have been studying for decades, important for the Hispanic slash Latino community. Can you explain to the audience why it was important for you to include this section in the overall unimaginable scheme? Sure. Somebody like me is not supposed to write a book like this. Right. Sometimes we're pigeonholed. Oh, you're Latino. You can write about the suffering of the Latinos. Mm-hmm stick to that uh, some of us pigeonhole ourselves yes <laughs> but you know what Sebastian I want the same freedom that everybody else has to tackle the world exactly with a global perspective that said uh, there are certain fields of expertise Cuba Puerto Rico Latinos in the US so naturally I dedicated a portion not a large portion no. a small portion of the book mm-hmm. to those three topics yeah the one of my favorite columns in that section was the was the one titled Hispanic Latino Latin X what's next with the X on the after next I mean I found it interesting because I sometimes struggle to use which one Hispanic, Latino, Latin with the E or Latin X terminology. So the fact that you you researched into the historic evolutions of all these identification lab- labels, I feel like a lot of people should read that column. And then you, of course, you mentioned you had a, your own incident in, you know, 1992 where you, you were uh, speaking at Colgate University and you got scolded. Scolded. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm not going to give that away. Right. That that column. Right, right, right. You know, if people are interested, they should buy the book. Uh, Excuse the plug. But yeah, one of the threads in this book is my appreciation and passion for human and civil rights. Yep. And I am against authoritarian figures. There's a thin line sometimes between irony, which as a Caribbean author I use all the time, Mm -hmm. and sarcasm. Right. Uh, I think the difference is that when there's sarcasm, there's a victim. Yeah. Right? And irony just happens. Happens, right, yeah. And um, there are very few people about whom I'm sarcastic in this book. Yeah. <laughs> it's a short list. Uh, <laughs> uh, at one point, I call them confirmed assassins, yeah, <laughs> which is true. But going back to your, your original question, I don't like 
when people are forced mm-hmm. to yeah. say something that they don't want. Mm-hmm. My dad took us out of Cuba because he was being told what to say, yep. and he didn't want that for me. Of course. So I will not let anybody lecture me and force me to use a certain term for another one, which was okay two weeks ago. Exactly. But now it becomes an imposition. Exactly. So that's the spirit of that column. Moving on to section six, titled Puerto Rico, the world's oldest colony. You know, as you mentioned in the intro of this this section, and also throughout this podcast, you started off your career as a historian in Puerto Rico, which gives you that additional layer of insight. I learned a lot from reading this section because uh, I never took your history of Puerto Rico class. So just reading this section gave me a lot of, you know, insight, you know, and Puerto Rico itself had a lot of unimaginable events um, in this period from 2019 to 2022. What were some of the ones that struck you as the most unexpected or maybe expected since you have that historical insight? Yes. Talk about pain writing. Uh, I love Puerto Rico dearly. Actually, we're going to have the book launch in Puerto Rico. Nice. Next month. That's awesome. There's a column that's called uh, The 20 Plagues of Modern Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. Yep. And Puerto Rico has had historic problems. Um. But then we find some problems that didn't exist before. Earthquakes. Yeah. I mean, who ever heard about earthquakes in Puerto Rico? We've been having them uh, during the 2020s. Um, Of course, corruption, it's painful. uh, Such a beautiful island with good people Mm -hmm. uh, that are cast of um, politicians are just, uh, with very few exceptions, just insatiable and corrupt. That's true in almost every country in Latin America and and actually throughout the world, political corruption. So I write those columns on Puerto Rico with with great pain. And uh, uh, I wish I knew that there was an answer to that eternal question of whether Puerto Rico should be a state. Right whether Puerto Rico should be independent or whether it should stay in this uh, halfway house Mm -hmm. status, uh, not fully independent, not quite a state, but associated with the United States. Moving on to section seven titled Exercises in Cuban Historiographical Maroonage. So first, please break down that title for me. Yeah, it it talks about being a maroon. Uh A maroon is escaped a slave. before you you write me letters, uh, this is a metaphor. Okay. Right? Yep, 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 this yep. is a metaphor. Yep. Um, and it comes from some developments in Cuban studies over the last uh, 10, 15 years. Uh, we have leading figures in those areas who have sort of established plantations around themselves, and they dominate the funding they are gatekeepers as to what gets published and what doesn't. Uh, they have a lot of power, and I could be, a, <laughs> I could play that game, but well, actually, I couldn't play that game, <laughs> you know, at my age, and actually never, of uh, you know, sucking up to certain um, leaders in the field. Mm-hmm. I, I use quotation marks when I say that. So I want nothing to do with that plantation. Right. And I'm a maroon. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a metaphor right. for somebody who's a Cuba expert who wants independence. Right. And I'll tell you why. I wrote a book, Revolutionary Cuba, A History. It's a very serious book. Mm-hmm. 
Some people have uh, praised it for being balanced and fair. Yep, indeed. And yet other people just took offense because I dared criticize some of the outlandish and excesses of the Cuban Revolution. Now, I couldn't bring myself to write a book that was praiseful of the revolution. Mm -hmm. Did some positive things occur? Of course, some did. But there's a sordid reality. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, many people in my field of Cuban studies are just Viva Castro uh, operators. Mm and they won't dare criticize, and they do it for political expedience. Right. I couldn't bring myself to write a book like that. No. Uh, out of respect for myself. Exactly. Out of respect for my parents. Mm-hmm. Out of respect to almost two million Cubans who fled the island. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't play those silly games. Yeah, no. This section was especially fascinating for me to read because some of the columns that you were publishing and writing coincided with when I was taking your history of Cuba class. So there were certain things I remember in your lectures that you would say in lectures. And then I'm like, oh, he said that when I was reading it. So that that was pretty cool for me personally. Explain your transition away from Cuba-focused research, which has been your primary area of study for the past almost two decades now. One of them is that I laid out for myself what I think is a very ambitious uh, program of writing. I've written seven books All of them deal with Cuba. Some of them look at the region of the Spanish-speaking Caribbean. I wrote what I consider the bookends of Cuban historiography. At the beginning is a history of early colonial Cuba. And then at the end, there was a book on the contemporary situation with the Cuban Revolution. Before that, I had written several books on the 19th century. And you know what? I think it was time to move on to other things. And they're good books, so not a plug, but people should go get them too if they want to learn a true balanced history. Explain to the listeners why Cuba still, as it was in the 20th century, still falls in the unimaginable events category of the 21st, particularly the past three years. Yeah, well, the first unimaginable thing has been playing out for a long time. Right. I mean, when the revolution started and the guerrillas led by Castro, took over, nobody believed, Mm -hmm. (laughs) starting with them, that this would last. (laughs) This can't go on, as Fidel Castro put it, under the very nose of the United States. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? You know, I remember in 1980, uh, 21 years into the revolution, Mariel Exodus, I thought, this must be the end. Mm Uh, then, I wasn't a historian back then. Then in 1989, the the, the Iron Curtain falling and uh, democratization in, in Europe, this can't go on for much longer. But now we're looking 30 plus years later yeah. and it's still going on. So that, that's the first unimaginable. The unimaginable that I write about is the fact that Cubans have engaged in widespread resistance beginning in July of 2021. The past few months, uh, similar protests, some of them violent. That was unimaginable because those are types of things that are not supposed to happen in Cuba, and yet they do. So it gives me some hope that at least people are, uh, well, what, what has happened is that they've lost fear. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. And how many people are you going to throw in jail? How many people are you going to 
abuse when there are that many people willing to risk it. You see, I complain, but I'm here comfortable in my office writing my books. Um, But it's another thing to be there and to be brave like uh, the individuals who are demonstrating most of it, peaceful demonstrations. Mm -hmm. Moving on to Section 8, titled Not Boring at All, Globalization and World Affairs. Why did you contextualize this section against the backdrop of political scientist Francis Fukuyama 1989 announcement that the end of history is here and centuries of boredom uh, thereafter? Yeah, uh, well, this is a revisit of the topic that historians know best. Yeah. We know best because we we look at a wide range of phenomena, not in isolation. Um, I think I'm fair with him. Uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. He 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 made a a claim that this was the end of history in mm-hmm. 1989. That the uh, old conflicts between capitalism and communism were were over between democracy and authoritarianism were were over and he writes very well and at one uh, towards the end of that famous essay he says that uh, we can expect i'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. uh decades uh, of of boredom mm-hmm. <laughs> well anybody alive in the last 4 years will tell you that uh, this is not not, not boring yeah. at all yeah. not boring at all and that those conflicts were not really resolved for good Look at the reemergence of authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. You know, places like Russia, uh, increased authoritarianism in places like Hungary, uh, Poland, which, thank goodness, one of the results of the invasion of Ukraine has been a strengthening of, of democracies. Mm-hmm. And Poland is one case. Uh, when Biden took over as president, or actually in the campaign, he he named Poland among those authoritarian countries. Yep. But now Poland is swifting back to uh, the democratic fold. Another strong case of historian intuition was the article titled, What History Tells Us About COVID-19's Future Impact, published March 31st, 2020. And then you later revisited that article in the Oracle of History section. And I think this is where we were talking a little bit about how there were some experts in fields making their predictions. So yeah, talk to us a little bit about that article. Yes, had I stuck with my original plan Mm -hmm. of having the columns in chronological order, which was not a good idea, that would have been early in the book. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's one of those columns that has a global focus. And there's this section uh, that we're talking about now, which is about global developments. Mm-hmm. So it reads much better at towards the end. It does. Because it fits with other columns that also deal with uh, global topics of you know geopolitics and the like. Uh, it was fun. When I revisit it in another chapter in the following, in another essay in the following section of the book, you know, you don't know what the research is going to tell you. Right. So one day I I Google prognostications, COVID, and all of a sudden I have all these uh, stories of people being interviewed, these experts. And I started reading and say, my goodness, you know, they're off the mark. I mean, one of them said that 
hyper individualism yeah. would be uh, would be gone. Yeah, yeah. Some of them said that we would <laughs> treat <laughs> uh, medical personnel as oh, as my, heroes. Yeah. Oh. And <laughs> I mean, ask Dr. Fauci whether that <laughs> ever materialized. Yeah. They were off the mark. Yeah. And I, I didn't write this column just to make them look bad. Right. Uh, I wrote it because I wanted to make history look good. Right, right. And how historians have a an intuition, have a a sensitivity for the interrelatedness mm-hmm. of of human phenomena. And I'm sorry that, you know, these experts don't come out looking well. Right. I do name them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And as I said earlier, one of them was upset. Yeah. Yeah. I said, well well, I won't say what I said. <laughs> Explain to us how disastrous the effects of clinging on to Cold War legacy, the Cold War legacy belief that capitalism and democracy are partners and communism and authoritarianism go hand in hand, as you alluded to most, if not all, the articles in this section. Yes. Uh, many people still hold on to that view that uh, democracy and capitalism go hand in hand and uh, authoritarianism and communism or socialism go hand in hand. It's simply not true. You have uh, many countries that are very capitalistic. Mm-hmm. Let's put China there right. at the top of the list and have nothing to do with democracy. And on the other hand, there are countries that are democratic socialists that are very capitalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the Scandinavian countries, for example. Now, But people still hold on to that belief that the, the, these are pairings. Right. So... I decided to write on that because I mean some people many people hold on to that to that idea. Actually, now that we're talking about this, ironically, in these times of crony capitalism, mm-hmm. extreme capitalism, authoritarianism seems to pair better. Right with capitalism, which you could understand at some level, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you want to exploit people right. to the very end, that's good for business. <laughs> right. It's not good for the country and society, but it's good for the for the bottom line. For my um, history and historian's research paper, I analyzed how the history of the Olympic Games can reflect and even sometimes intensify the contemporary social and political developments of the time. So I found your two articles about the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympics fascinating and how four days after the closing ceremony, the special military operation of Ukraine happened. So talk to us about that. Yes. Uh, I say that in quotes, by the way. <laughs> the special when, military when, operation. When you're a historian who's got uh, very attentive to developments, you develop this intuition uh, I write sort of tongue-in-cheek that, you know, sometimes I wish that I could just enjoy turning on TV yep, yep. and watching the games. But as a historian and somebody who has to come up with ideas for columns, I'm always sniffing out those opportunities. So uh, this goes back many years ago when uh, Putin, uh, Olympics, I think Winter Olympics yeah, in 2014. In 2014. Yeah, the Sochi Games. Yeah. Well, he gave the world a what I call Putin's PowerPoint. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> I don't think he would like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the PowerPoint was just to represent the greatness of uh, the Russian people, mm-hmm. and it was quite scary, actually, mm-hmm. because one of the slides in that PowerPoint was 
the Russian Empire. Right. Uh, they even came up with the idea that they had invented television. Mm. Uh, it must have been a top secret <laughs> program <laughs> because nobody else knew that. Right. Um, yeah, that was scary. There was a, an affirmation of wanting to restore that Russian greatness of, um, you know, past SARS. Right. 2022 is the final year in the period in which you put uh, the subtitle of this book. Did you think it could get any worse after what you saw through 2019 to 2021? And I'm obviously alluding to the brutal and sad invasion of, of, of Ukraine by Russia, but did you anticipate that? The, the invasion? Right. Um, yeah, in one of the columns I write that, you know, almost everybody's expecting it because there are troops lined up mm-hmm. uh, both in on the Russian side and in Belarus. There were things that took most of us by surprise. Right. I was remember February of 2022 turning on TV and hoping to see Kiev standing and Zelensky alive. There were moments when I thought, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah. But then they surprised the world. They did. They surprised the world. And they're fighting bravely. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to fight for something that you believe in, and it's another thing to fight because you've been drafted, maybe pulled out of a prison. They have the advantage. And the world, the civilized world, the democratic world, has uh, close ranks to be on the, the good side of history. Mm-hmm. Moving on to the final section of the book, section nine, titled The Oracle of History, um, and it, this includes the final four opinion columns of the 66 total um, in the book. Explain to us what was the purpose of including this final section and the articles that it contains. Yes. Since the one of the main themes of the book is history illuminating our understanding of the present and the future, I, I wanted to close with a few chapters on that. Uh, it was sort of a wrap-up. One of the essays is entitled, Are We Heading to a Second American Civil War? Mm-hmm. Um, in the other columns, I are we heading into a third world war? Mm-hmm. Again, all of this is illuminated by knowledge of the past. Right. Yeah. So those were all the commentary questions I had for you. So now we're in the final four questions. These are just concluding questions to wrap up this podcast that's been going great. I hope all the listeners um, have been enjoying it and learning something and also saying, yeah, we need to read that book. Out of all the unimaginable events from this 2019 to 2022 period, what was the most unimaginable that truly struck you as, I can't believe this, or wow, this is really happening? At the top of the list, I would place January 6th. Hmm. I just never thought that I would see one of the world's greatest symbols Mm -hmm. of democracy being stormed by an angry mob agitated by a sitting president. I would agree with you on that one. You conclude the book by answering your own question of, quote, when will this period end and will the world ever turn right side up? You answer, I can't tell. However, I'd be remiss if I don't ask you, since you're sitting in front of me, this two-part question. What do you see planning out for the remainder of this decade, the 2020s? And what do you hope happens? Because I work with students and young people, I always try to be optimistic. So there's optimism in terms of, and one of the columns speaks to this, that there was a definite trend, a wave of authoritarianism. But then 
just this last year, we have seen what I call countercurrents. Right. Yep. And those countercurrents I see here in in the United States. I see them in places like Poland. Um, but then we should also keep in mind uh, that there are cross currents, which can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm a Caribbean writer, and one of the things that characterizes the Caribbean is the polyrhythm, mm-hmm. which is African-derived, of course. Right. And there's something to be said about the Caribbean brain. And the Caribbean brain can understand and it has a sensitivity towards these uh, different rhythms. So as, as, let's say, in salsa, you have the conga player mm-hmm. with his rhythm or various rhythms or her. Uh, you have the bongo player, you have the the timbales, and but somehow they all come together well. Yep. It's not dissonant at all. Nope. And as a historian, I like to see what's unfolding before my eyes right. as a polyrhythmic concert. Mm-hmm. So you have certain developments going in one direction with one rhythm, but then at the same time, you have a... a a counterpoint, which is the uh, the, the word that um, experts on music use. Mm-hmm. It's just fascinating. It is. It is. What's the overall takeaway you want readers to get once they finish reading the book? Let's see. That's a, that's a tough question. I would say that it's the same takeaway that I want my students who take my courses to walk away with, and that is... They're counting on your ignorance. Mm-hmm. Read, think, disappoint them. Right. And that's why I emphasize so much the importance of reading in a thoughtful way, not superficially. You see, authoritarianism thrives on superficiality. Right. Another thing I tell my students is that there's power in knowledge, mm-hmm. and there's power in the use of words. Mm-hmm. And They may get away with a lot, but at least they know that you know. Right, exactly. And that keeps them on their toes. Well, having read the book these past couple days, yeah. And you you mentioned that quote of uh, read them, like read, you know, educate yourself to disappoint them. And you definitely accomplished that, that goal. These final things I have here, these final talking points... Uh, I'm going to run by some of my favorite, uh, and in no particular order, sentences or prose you wrote. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, you, you, said, you said it in the book, and, of course, you've said it in your courses. And, you know, when I talked to you, you pride yourself on, you know, writing style and what you were just saying, the, the Caribbean rhythm um, and being eloquent with that style. So I want to share with you some of my favorite. And also, this could be a nice little, I guess you could say, like a trailer for the for the style of the book for the listeners. So my first one is, and again, no particular order. Um, this quote, this book is an apology for the field of history that underscores its usefulness, its urgency rather in the grossly utilitarian context of the early 21st century. History matters for itself. It matters as a mean for a better understanding of the present. It even matters when trying to anticipate future developments. That's page two of the introduction. I could have not said it better myself. <laughs> 
the second one. Quote, history offers the best tools to understand the present and even prepare for future outcomes because historians look at human and social developments with a long term perspective and in their complex interconnectedness, multi camera videos rather than isolated snapshots. Page 295, section 8. Then the last one. While we, historians, do not talk about variables, we learn to identify and weigh them instinctively and without pretense of quantification. Historians avoid the trap of the single variable, the strand, or even braiding a few strands as into a rope. We are weavers of polychromatic, multi-textured fabrics. Page 356, section 9. So, so those are some of my favorite ones. Um, the style-wise, the, the metaphors, I love that. And there's, all, there's plenty of more uh, for the listeners. There's plenty of more throughout the book. Some of them are more light tone you know like funny like you said like i was telling you off mic that there were some ones that caught me off guard and i actually laughed out loud uh, and others were more serious like the ones i just read but i'll leave those other ones to be found by the listeners of this podcast when you get this book because it's a must read my final question before wrapping this all up is what are your future plans do you plan on keep writing columns i saw that you well you mentioned now your your next one's going to be about chat GPT. So do you, do you pl- how long do you plan on writing columns? Well, the world is not boring at all. Right. <laughs> so I'll have plenty of material to write about. I don't know how long, really, uh, will I continue writing columns. There have been times when I've, you know, the, the pipeline is running dry. Right. So it's a challenge to every week come up with something worth reading. Mm-hmm. And I think oftentimes I I accomplish that. Yes. I see in the future another collection of columns. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I also see other projects, you know, global, Mm -hmm. global projects. Um, I'm I'm swimming out of the Caribbean to other oceans. I love it. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Congratulations once again, Dr. Martinez-Fernandez, for the publication of the book. And thank you for not only accepting this invitation to talk about it with me, because I know you have a very busy schedule, but thank you for writing, you know, these columns and books, um, you know, in a truly, you know, I truly mean it in a world so chaotic, it, it could be hard to navigate, you know, and be aware of what's really going around. And, um, you know, you, you do it with such an astounding historical perspective in real time of the unimaginable. So thank you. Um, you know, I relived, I relived some horrible events like the George Floyd, uh, murder and the contentious 2020 presidential elections. But I also learned a lot about geopolitics and, you know, world affairs that I very much appreciate it. So again, for the listeners, it will be out February 15th. It's, uh, you could pre-order it on Amazon and other online vendors. Um, thank you once again, Dr. Martinez Fernandez. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This has been a wonderful interview. Thank you. That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it. I definitely enjoyed producing it. Like I said in the intro, this podcast episode will always hold a special place in my heart because I was able to interview one of my mentors who I respect and admire about his upcoming book. And the conversation was, it was great. We did deep dive analysis, high intellectual curiosity for me, which is what motivated me to, to really get in the weeds of this book so I, I it was great my hope now is that you all put your pre-orders in or circled your calendars to february 15th which again that is when the book will be official to the public 
And now that you've listened to the full podcast conversation, I hope you are more excited and took my word for what I said in the intro that this is a must read. Again, this podcast was about Dr. Luis Martinez Fernandez's upcoming book, When the World Turned Upside Down, Politics, Culture, and the Unimaginable Events of 2019 to 2022. As we talked about towards the end of our conversation, if you want more of Dr. Martinez Fernandez's opinion columns he's not done writing and he's still continuing to do them almost weekly so go check out creatorsyndicate.com and just search dr luis martinez fernandez in the search bar and his profile will come up with all his columns to keep up with him if you can't get enough of just this one book thank you all for listening to this episode of night's history cast i really appreciate it please subscribe to this feed to listen to future conversations about history 2023 is going to be a great year for night's history cast this is already an amazing start to it i couldn't wish for a better start honestly i'm really grateful for 2022 and the 10 episodes and what i've learned on mic and off mic about you know producing history podcast so 2023 is going to be a great year so please 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 stay tuned thank you once again for listening i really much appreciate it and i'll see you all on the next one thank you everybody